You've got a big surprise coming to you. <laughs> Welcome to Filmstrip, featuring Nick, Kismet Fat Boy, and Jay. Sometimes that is better. Please note, these episodes will contain spoilers and in-depth discussion of the plots and characters of the films. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. This is our review of The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, and Scatman Crothers. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, released in 1980 on a budget of $19 million, grossed over $44 million in its domestic run, largely considered a classic, and often finds itself atop of those lists of like scariest movies of all times. And also a Golden Raspberry nominee. <laughs> Indeed it is, and we'll have to get into that. As uh, we get into this, but you know, we're talking about The Shining as a kickoff to our, I, you know, I don't want to call it our Stephen King retrospective because we're not doing every Stephen King adaptation. I mean, this that would take forever, and we we have a lot of other interest in film that we're gonna we're gonna hit. I guess it's a cross section of Stephen King films that that you and I have decided to delve into over the next few months here, and uh, we decided to start with The Shining. And I I kind of want to ask you though, why Stephen King, and why start with The Shining? Shining, because this was uh, this was your brainchild. Um, I guess with Stephen King, he's just kind of a he's a man of his own. You know, it's like you know how many other authors out there can be. You know, where you say someone's name and you can like automatically relate to movies right away. I mean, you you think of Stephen King, you think of books and movies. I never really known anybody who thinks directly of just books when they say him without thinking of movies and vice versa. Where you might say someone like, you know, Grissom or something and it's books right away. And it's like, yeah, he has a couple movies, but Stephen King is so notorious for having so many of his works, you know, translated into movies or TV shows or miniseries or, you know, even like little short movie segments like in, uh, you know, Creepshow. I, I think you're right. I think that's the thing is his work is so prolific and it's been adapted uh, in so many different forms too. I mean, and, and part of the cross section we're going to hit, we're trying to get around a lot of the different stuff. I mean, I wouldn't call it a greatest hits considering some of the things we've got on the list, but definitely a, a sampling of a lot of the things that the man has done. Some of it, you know, he's behind the camera for, uh, you know, all of it, of course, adapted from his works. And some of it, he's had more of a hand in than others. And this is a curious one because it's one of the ones that's you know widely acclaimed, but it's also one that in a lot of ways got taken out of his hands. I mean, Kubrick really took this thing on and like he did, you know, almost anything else he touched that was adapted from another work, he made it his own and he, he really boiled it down to just the, the bare essence of the thing and, and turned out a very, well, I mean, if you've read the book and the, oh, this is not going to be a review of the book. I mean, we're going to talk about the movie, but if anybody's read the book, I mean, what you see here and what you read in the book are very different experiences to say the least. Definitely. I'm a big fan of the book, and the differences differences in the between the two are pretty startling when you really, you know, think about it. Even the theme. I mean, you can go on about the book, and, you know, it's really a theme about alcoholism and, you know, a father's struggle with that, because Stephen King himself struggled with that for many years, and that's what the essence of the book is about, where this movie it kind of has that in it, but it's really not about that. Yeah, I think the easiest way to sum up the, the biggest difference is that the Jack Torrance character in the book is a stable man who's driven crazy and tries to stay away from that. And the Jack Torrance of this movie is a crazy person trying to stay sane. <laughs> and I mean, that really is how it plays. And I guess that's something we can get into. But, you know, Nick, before before we go any further, though, I mean, you know, we don't want to tease people to death here. Um we do want to kind of spill the beans, I guess, on what our whole series is going to entail, what all we're going to do. So let's go ahead and kind of run the the list form of everything that we're going to review. And, you know, maybe in no certain order here, the stuff that we're going to hit. But like we say, we're going to do The Shining. That's our kind of our kickoff podcast here. Then we're going to catch one of those anthologies that you mentioned uh, called Cat's Eye, which I have never seen, but am really interested in kind of thinking about. 
we're going to do one of the short stories that was adapted. Uh, our first Corey Hain film on Filmstrip. I can't believe we've gone this long and haven't done this, but uh, Silver Bullet. Uh, we're going to uh, pick up Stand By Me, another one of the short stories adapted. Um, we're going to do It, the uh, the big miniseries from uh, the late 80s, early 90s, and of course one of King's well-known books. We're going to do Graveyard Shift, which I've only seen once and don't have any memory of. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do... We're, <laughs> so, I don't know what that says. Um, uh, we're going to do Misery, uh, you know, another cat. That's an Academy Award winning film right there. Uh, we're going to do Maximum Overdrive, which is not an Academy Award winning film, but has a really awesome soundtrack. <laughs> we're going to do Pet Cemetery, and then, of course, the Shawshank Redemption, because, I mean, any any cross section of King without that in it would, would be incomplete. And so, of course, there's a lot of other things that we could do. I mean, there's a Carrie remake coming out. And, I mean, you know, if you wait around long enough, folks, there's probably another miniseries coming around on Sci Fi or ABC or something. But those are the ones that we're going to hit over the next few months. So it should be a good time. So get your, uh, I would say get your Netflix queue ready, but I don't think much of that's on Netflix anymore. About three months ago, it all was, and then it went away. Yeah, I so. think maybe, maybe go to your local library and read the shelf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go to the library. Uh, you know, hit up Amazon. I know you can find it all there, and uh, even some of it's actually even on YouTube if you want to go that route. So number of different ways to catch it. But I guess before we get any further into this, Nick, we better go through a plot summary. So I'll, I'll do that real quick, and then we can get into the movie. Okay. Struggling writer Jack Torrance takes a job as a winter caretaker of the Overlook Hotel with the aim of using its solitude um, as it becomes completely snowed in during the long winters to work on his newest writing project. Manager Ullman warns him about a previous character caretaker developed cabin fever and killed his family and himself. We meet Jack's son, Danny, who has ESP and has had a terrifying premonition about the hotel. Jack's wife, Wendy, tells a visiting doctor that Danny has an imaginary friend called Tony and that Jack had given up on drinking because of, a, because of dislocating Danny's arm after a binge a few years ago. The family arrives at the hotel on closing day and is given the tour. The chef, Dick Halloran, uh, surprises Danny by telepathically offering him ice cream and explains to Danny that he and his grandmother shared the same telepathic ability, which his grandmother called The Shining. Danny asks him if there's anything to be afraid of at the hotel, particularly room 237, and Halloran tells Danny to, that the hotel itself has a shine to it, along with many memories, not all of which are good, and he also tells him to stay out of room 237. A month passes while Jack's writing project goes nowhere, and Danny and Wendy explore the hotel's hedge maze, and Wendy becomes concerned about the phone lines being out due to a heavy snowfall, and Danny has even more frightening visions. Jack, increasingly frustrated, starts acting strangely and becomes prone to violent outbursts. Danny's curiosity about room 237 gets the better of him when he sees the room's door open, and later he shows up injured and visibly traumatized, causing Wendy to accuse Jack of abusing him again. Jack wanders into the hotel's gold room where he meets a ghostly bartender and consumes bourbon and, and, and complains to him about his marriage. Wendy later tells Jack that a crazy woman in one of the rooms was responsible for his injuries, and as Jack investigates, he encounters the ghost of a beautiful woman, but tells Wendy that he found nothing. Wendy and Jack argue about whether Danny should be removed from the hotel, and a, and a furious Jack returns to the gold room, now filled with, with party guests, and he meets the man, a man named Grady, who tells Jack that he must, quote, correct his wife and child. Halloran has a premonition that something is wrong with the hotel, takes a flight back to the Overlook to investigate. Danny starts calling out Red Rum, Red Rum, frantically, and goes into a trance, now referring to himself only by his imaginary friend's name, Tony. While searching for Jack, Wendy discovers his typewriter, and he has been endlessly typing pages of a manuscript, repeating all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, formatted in various styles. She's confronted by Jack, who threatens her before she knocks him out with a baseball bat. She locks him in the kitchen pantry, and she and Danny are trapped at the hotel since Jack has sabotaged the two-way radio and the snowcat. Later, Jack converses through the pantry door with Grady, who unlocks the door, releasing it. Danny writes red rum and lipstick on the bathroom door, and when Wendy sees this in the a bedroom mirror, the letters spell out murder. Jack begins to chop through the door with an axe, leading to, into his family's living quarters, and Wendy frantically sends Danny out through the bathroom window, but can't get through it herself. Here in the engine of the snowcat, uh, Halloran barred to get up the mountain. Jack leaves the room. He kills Halloran in the lobby and pursues Danny in the hedge maze. Wendy runs throughout the hotel, encountering several ghosts and a huge wave of blood coming out of the elevator shaft. Meanwhile, Danny walks backwards in his own tracks and leaps behind a corner, covering himself with snow to mislead Jack, who was following the footprints. Wendy and Danny escape in the snowcat while Jack freezes 
to death in the hedge maze. And in a final shot, there's a photograph in the hotel hallway dated July the 4th, 1921, and Jack Torrance smiles amid the crowd. And that is a basic plot summary of The Shining and what happens. And it's, uh, you know, we should say off the top, if, if you haven't seen this, spoiler alert, and second, um, it you're in for a long haul. And I think the first thing we got to talk about is that this movie was released in 1980, but it was shot definitely in the 1970s. It has an aesthetic to it that is very different from anything in modern cinema. Well, definitely. Um, I think they said it took about 500 days to actually shoot this movie, which is, you know, when you look at like a lot of the behind the scenes stuff with movies today, I mean... How long do they take usually? Like three months, you know, eight weeks? Well, I mean, th- you know? there are some movies that take, you know, 17 days to come out. You know, I yeah. think those Paranormal Activity movies are like inside of a month. Yeah, probably like three days <laughs> for those movies. But yeah, I mean, when I read about like 500 days for this movie, I was just like, wow. I mean, that is a long time. And when you hear a lot of the behind the scenes stories, too, about like Shelley Duvall and what Kubrick kind of... uh did to her, I mean, supposedly, like, one of the scenes in the movie, they did, like, 134 takes, and it was all just to wear her down mentally and physically, just so she would look the part of, like, a distraught wife, you know, dealing with an abusive husband in a real, like, you know, crazy location, you know, so... Yeah, Nicholson has said many times, you know, his only memories of this are pages and pages of dialogue continually handed to him, and he just stopped memorizing the script at one point because he knew he would get new stuff every day. He would shoot and then go to his hotel and just completely collapse. He had no time to do really anything except work on this movie for a year and a half. And I mean, I can't even imagine the grueling process that is. But now that's a Kubrick thing, right? I mean, that's sort of the part of his his reputation. You know, and I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead here, but th- this is not a new thing. I mean, that's kind of how he does stuff. Yeah, his shtick is the over-perfectionist. You know, he was uh, very, very much a master of his craft, and he, you know, went to some extremes with, you know, filming. And you hear about it a lot with a lot of the movies that he did, and this being, you know, probably the most famous and probably most notorious it's certainly one that he is often associated with him when people think of Kubrick. I think this and probably like 2001 are, are going to be films that are always in the mindset. I mean, thank goodness it's not eyes wide shut, you know, <laughs> or some of the other things that he was involved with. But this one, I think it resonates because we got to think about time and place here, Nick. This came out at the really the the beginning of the slasher craze. You know, this came out two years after Halloween, uh, right around, you know, it actually came out a little bit before Friday the 13th, or right around the same time. But this is before, like, this is when horror movies turned into something different. And Kubrick's take on it was very much something out of, like, the Vincent Price era, but just amped up, you know, for a few notches and with a little more class, maybe, than, than some of those, those schlocky kind of films from from that era, don't you think? A little bit. This, this movie really just kind of reminded me of the original Haunting. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. Yeah, yeah, like, that's a good good comparison. It's it's very much less on the bump out, you know, scare you, shock moments, and more of just the atmosphere it's setting up, and that basically the atmosphere and the circumstances behind it is what's scary. It's not the necessarily like you're going to see Jack walking down a hallway and you're kind of scared that something's going to jump out, you know, that kind of scary. It's just like, it's a slow burn. There's a creep factor to this. Something I didn't really mention in the plot summary there is, that, you know, one of the things that starts tipping Danny off is he sees these two little twin girls, like, all over the hotel. Like, when they're first, you know, there on the first day tour, he sees them, and then they meet him in the hall, and he sees them all chopped up. And, I mean, they're, you know, as we come to find out, they were apparently the ghosts of the previous caretaker who had, you know, killed his family and all that. But, I mean, th- there's a creep factor, and it's it's all, it's the sound, it's the, I don't even know if you call it a score. I mean, there is a score to this film, but it's that droll, haunting, oppressive music. And then it's these, you know, the thing about this film is that it's the idea is you're in this big, wide open place out in the middle of nowhere, but it feels incredibly claustrophobic. And that's a feat because the thing about haunted house movies is they work because you're in a tight, dark space you don't know. Well, here they're in a big, bright, well lit place they don't know, and it feels like it's closing in on them every minute. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for this with the Overlook Hotel, I think the creep factor of it is just how big it is. It's just like, 
it's just a monstrosity and they're just so small being within this you know hotel and it almost feels like this hotel could almost consume them at any time and i guess that's kind of what happens throughout it is this hotel is consuming jack that that's an interesting way to look at it. And let's talk about that to kind of get into the plot here and talk about this. I mean, their central character here is Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, the the stories go, that, you know, he wasn't necessarily the first choice, and you know, they went through a lot of people. Particularly, wasn't someone King really thought a lot of, you know. But I, I think I, I said earlier on that the way he plays this is a man who's already kind of unhinged and then this just throws the latches completely open. But uh, there's a lot of different ways to interpret what happens to him here. You know, is he a violent, crazy man who's, you know, in the, in the wrong place, the right time, or is he the reincarnation of this ghost? You know, like we're sort of led to believe at the end of that picture from 1921, does he just keep, is his soul keep reappearing and occasionally turn up kind of looking like himself at this hotel, this sort of faded to doom person? Ah, uh, good question. I always took it as that it was just the hotel was probably calling out to him as just, you know, he's the right kind of, you know, craziness that this, you know, that fit perfectly into the hotel. I mean, I always took him, even from the first scene that he's in, and maybe it's because he's Jack Nicholson, and he always <laughs> plays crazy, that I never took him as a normal guy that was being slowly, you know, kind of seduced by the hotel to turn crazy. I always thought that he was kind of nuts to begin with. I mean, you you get the story about him with Danny and about how he, you know, pulled the kid's arm out of its socket and how he had an alcohol problem, and... Just the way he doesn't come off as like a like a guy who just maybe you know alcohol got the best of him and he fell down to that dark pit. It seems like he kind of welcomed that. Just but just the way he looks. I mean, it's probably a lot has to do with like I said, like the characters Jack has played. But he doesn't play it any differently in this movie. I mean, even when he's like you know interviewing with you know Allman, yeah, he's interviewing with Allman and stuff. He just he has that crazy look on his face the whole time, and it's like, nah, man, this guy's you know batshit nuts you know well i think i think he that's the thing he looks crazy so it's hard for jack nicholson to not look crazy and i think part of that is we've seen him play that so many times it's it's impossible to erase it from you even in roles where he's supposed to be kind of silly and sympathetic i mean he's done a lot of that in the last few years and stuff but even like going back to something like terms of endearment which he did three years after this if you've ever seen that he's insane in that movie (laughs) i I can't i can't can't name one movie he wasn't insane and i mean yeah i mean that's his whole thing and and i think that's but you know he has that whole speech with wendy that he's like you know i felt like i've been here you know for a hundred years i know this place backward and forward so i've always sort of been led to believe that kubrick's thing was that this guy was just a reincarnated spirit that continually wound up in these i guess loser men that found their way back to this hotel because we know really nothing about him before he gets here i mean he said he used to be a teacher but that really wasn't his passion he was a writer but we never see him write anything you know he just seems to be consumed with he has this mission and he's supposed to be important but he's really a nobody and he's consumed by this sort of tragic moment at, at this point and I mean I don't believe in, re- in reincarnation necessarily but the idea of, of that is interesting to me because if you've had someone that has at least at three or four occasions that we can sort of dot by what we're told in the film here gone through this experience it that spirit or whatever never learns anything past the age of you know, 35 or whatever he's supposed to be right here you know it just gets to this moment and then everything crumbles and then it has to you know, start over again. I don't know. It's it's a neat way to read it, but I think you, you've hit it is that so much of this is in Nicholson and it's in his eyes. And they do a, a really interesting thing with him. They have his, his hair is kind of long in this movie, but they have it sort of swept back and he looks like he's fairly well put together there. And slowly but surely, he just looks more haggard, you know, and it doesn't take much for that to do. You just muss his hair up and grow his beard out a little bit. And Jack Nicholson looks like he's been on a bender for about 10 days. <laughs> No, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I guess I just really don't know how to take it. I mean, I could take it either way that, you know, maybe he's a reincarnated spirit of, you know, the old caretaker, you know, he's always the caretaker, you know, living out his life and his actions and how he behaves is eventually going to lead him back to the, you know, the Overlook Hotel. Or maybe that he's just, you know, like I said, the type of guy that's, you know, was drawn to this hotel and, you know, the hotel ends up consuming him and he becomes part of the hotel and he's, you know, part, you know, now part of it. I mean, Really, I mean, the movie let, lets you have it both ways. 
really does, and that's that's the good thing about it is that you can read it either way. But the, he's our entry point into this whole thing because that opening shot, which the footage of which has been reused many many times, Ridley Scott's borrowed some of it. I'm surprised it didn't wind up in Prometheus at some point because uh, you know it borrowed from everything else. But you know, there's that that opening shot of the winding road and him driving up to the hotel, and then the opening interview where they kind of it's all exposition. I mean, the first five minutes of this movie are him basically sitting in an office and this businessman sort of telling him here's what you have to do and here's the history of the hotel and it's all very nonchalant and that's the part that always strikes me is that this guy tells this story about the previous caretaker just like it's and then everyone died you know i mean it's it's really kind of flat and that's a interesting reading Mm -hmm. yeah definitely i think he just something that's matter of fact and you know i think he kind of knows that jack torrance in this movie i mean he kind of goes on later when Jack's talking about himself. He's kind of a loser. I mean, he can kind of just give it to a matter of fact, and he knows that it's not going to scare him away because he needs the job. Good point. Yeah. I mean, what does he say? Our, our people in Denver recommended him highly, and I agree with them. It's probably because you'd have to be pretty desperate to say, I'll take a job where I isolate myself for five months away from really anybody else except my family. You know, and and I think he's just telling him because for I guess maybe for insurance purposes or whatever, or just good conscience. Eh, I got to tell you about the last guy that we tried this on and didn't work out so well. That's the other interesting part here is he tells this story about this caretaker that goes nuts and and he says the last one we hired, but it was several years prior. So I'm like, well, what happened all those other years? Did they just let the hotel you know go to go to pot during the winter and come back and try to fix it all in the summer that's the part of this that, and i'm not trying to pick out the plot holes i'm saying that's one of the interesting little parts of this and i think every good ghost story has these things that can't be filled in and that's part of what makes it intriguing but i don't know i've always picked up on that and thought well what about all the other caretakers i would have asked about those you know yeah who knows maybe he was the caretaker for a little bit maybe you know Scatman was one for a little bit. I mean, <laughs> they could have just had one of the employees stay there and maybe didn't, you know, directly hire one. He was just referencing the last one that they, you know, contracted to come in. Or maybe Almond's, you know, part of the hotel himself. And, you know, he's just, you know, they don't have a caretaker and this was all set up by the hotel and all. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, that's, that, yeah. Ooh, that, then it starts getting real weird. So, well, if we're going to talk about the supernatural stuff, we got to talk about. I guess you'd call him the third character, but we'll go ahead and talk about Danny here, Jack's son. Danny Lloyd, I mean, really the only thing he ever did was this, a couple of TV movies, and I think the guy's like a biology professor or something now. I mean, he totally left all this behind. But Did he marry Blossom? (laughs) No, I don't think so. (laughs) But, you know, the, the thing is, is... Like Kubrick has always said, I shot this whole thing and this kid didn't know he was in a horror film. And I have a hard time believing that because there's a couple of times he's doing stuff. I'm like, how would you get that performance out of someone if they didn't know they were supposed to be scared? You know, like, I, I don't know. But like where he's having a seizure with you know, spit <laughs> coming down to there. Well, that and where he's covering his eyes because he's supposed to see like crazy stuff down the hallway or whatever. I mean, you know, I don't know how much is true of that. But I'll say this. Danny Lloyd, to me, is one of the best child actors in a in a film I've ever seen. Uh, the performance here is fantastic. And it's all very subtle things. Like that whole moving his finger when Tony's talking and that deep voice. He just came up with that on his own. And I was like, you know, that's the kind of instinct you want. I can see why Kubrick would have been drawn to this kid, you know, because I mean, we we can all think of movies where the kid actor really is what destroys it, yeah. And this guy, I mean, he did a good job with this. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was actually thinking about that as we talked about this, but I I I thought um, I really liked Danny. I've always sort of enjoyed watching him through this. He doesn't he never gets on your nerves. I think part of it's because he's so darn quiet. Yeah, he doesn't ever over, you know, step his, you know, role. I mean, everything is so, like, drawn back. And, like, I'm a father. I have a five-year-old. And I buy a lot of stuff that he's doing or saying or acting. You know, he's just he's just a kid. He's, you know, like, you watch something like, you know, I brought up The Phantom Menace. I mean, the stuff that that kid's saying in that movie is just like, you know, no, no, no six- or seven-year-old's going to say that. But you buy it with Danny. You completely buy it. And just like his little tics that he has with, like, the finger and stuff. I mean, like my son, for instance, he has an imaginary friend. And he's always talking to him. And, like, sometimes he's doing the voice of the guy. Like, he's, you know, the voice of his friend, uh, 
is talking to him and he's you know doing it he's talking for him and stuff so it's completely believable and it's it's a very very good role and you were right i mean a lot of times that you know these movies they'll bring a child actor in and it just sinks the movie and this one i don't think it it doesn't hurt it but it doesn't elevate it i mean it's just it's a good good starring role and i think you're always going to have that problem with a kid being a central point of the movie where it's you know it's either not going to do anything or it's going to hurt it it's never really going to elevate it Unless, unless you're Game of Thrones, which I know is a different thing. <laughs> it's a particular trope of horror films. You know, they try to bring the kid in, you know, and, and either they're comic relief or they, they drag the thing down. I can only think of one other instance where the kid actor doesn't ruin the thing, and that's Danielle Harris in Halloween 4 and 5, which are by no means cinematic masterpieces. Well, the whole thing, too, I mean, you can talk like aliens, like with nude and stuff, and a lot of times the story doesn't really call for a child to be in it, and it's almost like the character is inserted into the movie to invest the audience, because no one wants to see a baby or a child get killed. And that's almost like something like the writer or the director will bring into a movie just so it just brings the people in, like, let's put the kid in danger. That's going to get everybody in there to be really into the movie and be have it be real suspenseful for them. But in this movie, the kid is an essential part of the plot. And yeah, you're feeling you're fearing for the kid, but you know what? I don't think it would matter if he was six or he was eighteen. It's just because of who he is and his role in the film and the story that it works. You know, it's it's oh, not yeah. like it's it's not, it's, not, it's not a cheap trick. It's not like you know, hey, you got you know Jack and his wife in the movie would work without Danny. It's like no, Danny's an you know essential part of the story. Yeah, I mean he's he's our link to The Shining as, as it is. I mean because even though the he shitting? doesn't. The Shining, The Shining, even though he doesn't really know what it is and doesn't really want to. I mean, I think that's the interesting part of that whole bit with uh, when he's with uh, Halloran, Scatman Crothers, and they're eating the ice cream, and he he won't talk about it, you know, and he's like, hey, no, don't be worried about it, little man, you know, which is funny to me to listen to, but it... It is neat because he doesn't really have a grasp on this thing. So it, what lets you know is that Danny's really just a conduit of information for you. He's never going to be able to like turn his power on, like you know, uh, go back to Phantom Menace. You know, the kid can't start to use the Force once he learns what it is. You know, or whatever. I mean, he he doesn't really know how to deal with this. And at some at one point, it really just renders him almost catatonic. You know. Yeah, and I th- I, th- I think the reason that he's kind of like that is just because it's something he's had his whole life. Yeah, Something right. I think he's had his whole life. I mean, it's almost like a kid, like, you know, with a lisp or a kid that was born who, you know, can't hear or something, you know, to everybody outside of it. It's, you know, different and shocking and weird. But to him, it's just like, yeah, it's, you know, just part of who I am. And here you are. You have just brought up a thing we're going to see anytime Stephen King has kids in his stories. He always gravitates toward the kids that are the quote losers or have something wrong with them or whatever. And he finds a way to make that extraordinarily special. You know, I've always said Stephen King is like the, the best friend of the outcast kid. You know, it's one of the many reasons his books became very popular among young people because there were a number of those kids felt that way, could find themselves in those books. And he always finds a way to do this. And it's the one thing I think Kubrick kept from the book that I, I think does translate. And the book, Danny's much more active, but it's that central piece of it that I think works so well here. And it's, it's a right move the way Kubrick decided to use Danny in this. Oh, that's sort of the definitely. avatar for that, that lost kid. But yeah, we, we got to talk about the, the second character, if you will, because probably the person that has the most lines in the film, Wendy, Shelley Duvall. Wow. <laughs> well, you mentioned Razzie nominated. She's the reason why. Um, <laughs> And uh, I watched this twice, uh, getting ready for this one, Nick. And I've seen this movie a, a you know, lot growing up and stuff and for many years. But I've always had a negative reaction <laughs> to Shelley Duvall. Is it the teeth? Is it the teeth? It's it's everything, man. It's the voice. It's the teeth. It's the look. It's the eyes. It's the whole bit. And and I've seen the woman. They clearly did things to her to make her incredibly unattractive here, okay? And... I, you know, she's not a knockout, but she's also not the worst looking thing on the oh, planet. The, but the house dresses but, are terrible. But I want to tell you, the way they dress her, and even my wife notices, my wife had never seen this movie. She watched it with me one time, and she was like, yeah, they're really not trying to flatter her at all. They're really making her look terrible. And I said, I think that's the point, is they're trying to show you in physical represented ways the distance between her and Jack. You know, and the thing is, though, for me, 
Shelley Duvall is a bumping, is a, is a speed bump for me in this movie. Always has been. It may be the only thing that the TV version of this got right in 1997 when they cast Rebecca De Mornay. Because having read the book and knowing the Wendy character, she was supposed to be like this ex-cheerleader type that had never had a problem in her life. And part of the growth of this story is she learns how to be self-sufficient in a way. She doesn't need Jack's approval and she doesn't try to live through Danny. She sort of has to learn how to take care of herself and, and do all this other stuff. Shelley Duvall to me is always crying, whimpering, or, oh, come on, don't be a grouch. Like, she's talking like Sesame Street the whole freaking movie. And I just, I want to hit her with the bat. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Jack's character always coming off insane as, as insane and abusive. Because the first moment you see her, she's very shaky. You know, she's smoking a lot. She's shaky. She's very much, you know, dressed down. She's, you know, not very kempt very well. I mean, she's got the long black stringy hair. You know, she's not wearing any makeup. She just looks like she's just kind of thrown together and cheap, as they would say in Goodfellas. I mean, she's not, she comes off as an abused wife the whole time. She comes off as someone who's just been run through the gutter because of this guy and you know, it's, like I said, it's, I don't know, it's just the way she comes off the whole time. It's just, she doesn't come off as a strong character. She just comes off as one that's been abused. And I think well, that's the I, reason they, they made her look like that. I really think that's the reason why Kubrick and, you know, people behind this movie had her dress the way she's dressed, have her hair the way it is, because they're representing her as a wife that's been abused for years by this guy. And I could buy that. The problem is they don't invoke sympathy with that because the way she plays it makes me really annoyed with her. Like, I don't want to sit there and go, well, she had it coming, you know, because that's never right and not, not cool. But I don't like her. I don't want to like her. I almost, I'm supposed to feel sorry for her, but I'm like, honey, this is your own fault. You keep taking this. I think, I think it's, I think it's a combination between the way she looks. I mean, some stuff she can't control, but also the way that they have her dress and everything like that. And also the fact that she's making excuses for the guy very early in the movie. I mean, when she's talking about how the father ripped, the, you know, Danny's arm out of his socket. I mean, you know, I'm a big guy and I would not, I could never do that to my son. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, you know, I could probably grab him by his arm, but I, I'm aware of what I'm doing. And obviously for anybody who has a kid, they are the same way and they know that, okay, it wasn't an accident. I mean, you don't rip up a kid with a momentary loss of muscle control and rip out his arm socket. You got to do it pretty damn rough. Right. And I think. I think by you know hearing that story, we are almost like the psychiatrist in that because we're kind of just looking at her like, why are you def- why are you making excuses for something that's clearly not all right? And you're kind of making up lies, and that that's your first impression of her. And you know, first impressions are key. And I think that's kind of brought out throughout the whole movie is that. This is an abused woman, but an abused woman who's an enabler. Well, can I say this? I think I think Wendy, and this is my reading of her or whatever, but I could buy Wendy as a woman who came from an abusive household or whatever, and she married a verbally abusive man. Because at no time does Jack ever physically attempt to harm her, except at the very end when he's got his axe and all that stuff. But he never hits her or anything, but he does believe oh, yeah. her. He, he, you know, he talks down to her. I mean, he's a total jerk to her. So, like, I buy this as, like, Wendy's the kind of woman that came from a physically abusive household, right? And then latched on to the first guy that treated her halfway nice. Unfortunately, he also had a very bad mean streak in him, and he could be very verbally abusive, but he would never lay well, I took it as, on. you know, if you're yeah. going to go that route with, you know, being in an abusive household growing up, that she probably married the first guy that was like her dad. I mean... You see that a exactly. lot. So, and, yeah. you know, you talk about like, you know, yeah, physically abusive, you know, that we really didn't see it until the end. I mean, you can tell that he was mentally abusive to her because can you name one instance in the movie where he's positive or nice to her? He's not. The whole time oh, he no, was a complete never, never did her. I mean, even in the car ride there, you know, he's got to make like little snide comments to her. I mean, even before, you know, the whole hotel starts taking him. I mean, when she goes in there and talking about bringing him a sandwich... You know, he's just got to be like, he just kind of goes off on her about, you know, his freaking writing and stuff. And it's like, and she just took it and she took it. And I think that's kind of a lot of the reason why when you rewatch this movie that it's like you bring that all with you, that it's like she never stands up for herself until the end when her life's in danger. And it's kind of like, you know, you kind of lose respect for people like that. It's like, yeah, she's abusive. I feel bad for her. 
but in the way she doesn't ever stand up for herself. So there's no way she's enabling it. She's allowing it to happen. Well, she, she does the one thing when it when it comes down to it that makes the most sense. When she knocks him out, which is really an accident. You know, I mean, he, she kind of hits him and he sort of lunges at her and she just swings and clocks him with that bat. She's like, I can't let him wake up and find me. So she locks him in that pantry, which is the smartest thing Wendy probably does the entire time. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised the little uh, 110 guy, she probably doesn't even weigh 100 pounds, but she could drag Jack Nicholson all the way to the kitchen. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that was a that was a far drag. But it, the the point being is that Wendy is supposed to be a sympathetic character, and I think as a character she is. I what I'm hearing from you is is the same thing that I've always said. I, Shelley Duvall just does nothing for me as a performer, and and I realize that's what they're going for. But I think it was the wrong choice. I would have rather had they gone with somebody that was remotely attractive, but was playing it down and sort of got beat down over time. That would have been more interesting for me to watch than someone who's not really there to begin. What with. about not showing them as having a better relationship in the beginning? I mean, yeah, that's the other thing. Like they, they know have no chemistry together at all. Like I needed something where they were at least remotely tender with each other so that I could buy the fact that she would at least care about. Yeah, I mean, if we're supposed to take that the whole hotel is, basically, you know, descending Jack into madness that you'd want to show, like I said, like this is my main problem with the, with the movie because I'm a big fan of the book. And the main problem is the fact of how Jack's portrayed and how Wendy's portrayed. Danny's fine. He's fine. But it's just the fact that it's not a normal family that's brought into this place and the man, you know, descends into madness and ends up trying to kill his family. It's an abusive husband with a you know, a, an abused wife with a kid who's completely, you know, been abused himself and, you know, probably, you know, disregarded by his father, brought into a hotel. And it's like, yeah, you can totally see it happening. It's not a shock that this father is going to, you know, turn mad. It's kind of, it was expected from the beginning. I, I agree completely, man. I mean, I think that's, that's the real kick of this is that we have a hard time understanding how bad this is for them because we never see them when they're in better times together. You know, like there, I'm trying to think of another example of a film where you see somebody's relationship dear deteriorate over time, but I, I can't, it, there's nothing coming to mind right now, but that's the, that's the kick of it is that you just don't, you don't have any reason to buy into their relationship as real. And I just, I don't know. I just think, you know, like I said, if it was just been, a better relationship to start out with, and you see a guy descend into madness, you would just be brought into these characters so much more, and you would just feel so terrible when you see Jack just, like, doing stuff, like, you know, going after his wife or writing all that stuff in there. You just get that, you know, that sense in the pit of your stomach where it's like, my God, I don't want to see this guy do it. We're in this movie. You just expect it. You expect it the whole time. Exactly. You're waiting for him to explode, basically. And that's the whole thing is Jack Nicholson his Jack Torrance is a bomb waiting to go off and you're just waiting for it to go off and you just see it slowly, but surely happen. I mean, it starts with those scenes where he's bouncing the tennis ball, you know, and they're out having fun and he's just isolating himself and he's just, he's just bored out of his skull and he has nothing to write about. He has nothing to do. And he just sits and sits and sits and he just, then he, then he sleeps and he can't sleep. And it's just one thing after another, you know, and that's the whole bit is that you watch him and and there comes a point about, I would say 20 minutes into this movie when he's staring out the window at them and he's got this wild look on his face while they're playing in the maze or whatever. And you can see like behind his eyes, he's plotting ways to kill them. You know, even though he maybe isn't even realizing he's doing it when he has that dream later and he's screaming and he wakes up and he says, I had the most awful dream ever. I dreamed I chopped you into pieces. You know, it's like, well, you've been looking like you've been thinking about that since she's got here. You know, so that wasn't a hard leap for me to take. I think it would have been more interesting to see it played from the point of view of somebody that tried to fight that a little bit more. You know, it seemed like he gave himself over to the darkness real quick. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, it's just it's the whole Lucas thing again with, you know, Anakin. You got a character who is completely dislikable the whole time. So when he go, turns bad, it's like, eh, you know, kind of expecting it. 
You know, yeah, I, I mean, don't feel bad about it at yeah. all. And like, would have been so much to have them, you know, change the script up a little bit. And actually, you know, when you got Wendy and Danny running through the hedge maze together, if he's with them and they're acting as a cohesive family together, and you know, he's acting like he's enjoying their company instead of treating it like a burden since day one. I mean, even when they're touring the hotel together, I mean, he's just acting like his family's a burden that they're there. And I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, dude, quit being a jackass. I mean, you're, you're pulling your kid who's probably, what, in first grade, kindergarten? He's not going to school, obviously, so you're removing that part of his life. It's like, you know, quit acting like they're a burden. You know, they're doing a lot for you by coming along with, you know? And, and there's there's one time where you look like he's trying to relate to his son, you know, when Danny goes to get his fire truck and, you know, he's trying not to wake his dad up and Jack's just sitting there because he can't sleep. And he, you know, he brings Danny over to the bed and he's sort of hugging him and he's like, I'm real tired. And he said, well, Danny's like, why don't you go to sleep? And he said, I can't. You know, like there's that one moment there where he's trying to relate to him, you know, but. Danny plays it like I need to get away from you yeah. because you you kind of get the sense that he knows something's not right and, well, and it's the Tony in him telling him get away. Get even away. in that scene though, I mean it it transitions into Jack interrogating him about his mom. Like, did she tell you that? Yeah, and stuff. And even like Danny asks him, "You're not you're not going to hurt us." He never answers the question. He never answers the question once. Like, yeah. the kid goes, "Or oh, are you gonna you're not going to hurt me and mommy?" You know, the the normal reaction would be like, my God, no, I would never hurt for you, hurt you guys. You know, I'd never, I'd die for you guys. And like, that would be the normal answer that a father would give. But he never answers it. He just right away turns it on to Wendy like he wants to kill Wendy. I mean, that was basically what I got out of him because it was like, ooh, well, your mother said that? Ooh, you know, like, oh, well, she's trying know, to in, turn in, you against me? You know, that's that's what I got from it. Yeah, in his first you know, bar confession or whatever, when he first sees the ghost that's yeah, that he calls Lloyd... You know, that's that's what he says. He's like, I'd never hurt the kid. I love the little song gun, but that bitch. You know, I mean, it's the first thing he says. I'm like, who says that about your child's mother? You know, like I know couples that have had hard times. They get divorced and stuff like that. They would never say that kind of crap about. I mean, the ones that are trying to be normal people don't do that stuff. You know, and that's why you know this. That's why it's so hard to like. You know care that jack has gone off his rocker is because you're like well you know what you're a jerk and deserve it you know like you don't care for him at all there's no reason to like him at all and that's that's a real problem for me as this movie descends into madness is if i'm supposed to care about him i needed to see at some moment that he was somebody that was remotely likable and there's nothing at all redeemable about the guy no, no, I completely agree that he's yeah. just, he's hes irredeemable throughout the whole movie. I mean, from the first scene you get him at him, he's just, he's not a nice guy, so you don't really care. <laughs> Let's talk about Scatman Crothers' character for a little bit. Dick Haller, the, 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 really the, the, well, Tony Burton shows up for like six seconds in this movie, but really the only other African-American in the whole film. And he's the... He's also our explanation of what the shining quote unquote is, you know, and he tries to draw that out of Danny. What do you make of him and his whole shtick? I mean, I liked him. I think he's just, he's almost coming off as a fatherly figure that Danny never had, you know, especially right when the beginning when he gets there. I mean, as far as, you know, getting him ice cream, talking to him, kind of playing with him a little bit. I, I enjoyed his character. I thought, you know, he's just playing the nice old man. You know, he's playing the, the Obi-Wan Kenobi role and stuff, you know, you know the Danny's Luke. And it's, it's, you know, later in the movie when he gets killed, I mean, it's one of the scenes I really hate because it's like, you know, he really didn't serve a purpose in the end. But, you know, I, I, I enjoyed his role. I think he's, you know, he's a pretty good actor and stuff, and I wish he would add more to do. I like him, too, and that, that's the thing. He spends, you know, that those great moments in the beginning talking to Danny and giving us the tour and you know, the, what's the shining is, and then, like, he wakes up in bed kind of freaking out, and then he spends the next 10 minutes on the phone, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, he wouldn't know that the phone lines go down, there's not going to be anything I do about that. Like, there seems to be a lot of wasted, and like you say, he gets there only to be killed. Like, he never even gets to Danny again. You know, I don't know why. I, I guess they wanted like a shocking kill in there because Jack comes out of nowhere and hits him with that axe. I mean, it is one of the the really jump out of your skin moments of the film. But I I really felt like he was wasted in this. I mean, I like that character too. I thought, what could 
more have been done with him. But I, I don't know. I mean, I just felt like they kind of shoveled him in and out of the movie when they needed somebody to somebody from the outside to explain things. Yeah, I think that was basically his role was to just, you know, so the f- audience didn't get claustrophobic themselves too much by just being in that hotel that it was kind of a, we're going to pull you out of it real quick and show you what's going on in the other side of the world, you know? And I don't know, I just, like I I agree, man. I just feel like, you know, they could have done something a little bit differently with them instead of having them just show up, go through all that effort to get talking on the phone. You got him, you know, getting the snow cat to go up there, him making his way up there just to walk in and to get an axe in the back. I mean, the Simpsons played with that perfectly in one of their Halloween episodes where um, Willie was, you know, the Scatman Scatman character where he, every time he showed up, he just got an axe to the back. I'm going to save you kids. Oh, he gets an axe in the back or Maggie shows up yeah. behind him and hits him with an axe. Or, it was just kind of a nice little play on what happened in this movie where it's like, you got a character who, you know, he doesn't have to save the day. I mean, he could have died, but it was just like, just for him to show up and just like, oh, he's dead. And it's, I think the movie, they just did it because they wanted to kill him in the movie. Up until this point, there's no, no one dies. Well, that's the thing is like you hear about death and you see evidence of death, but you don't see it actually happening. And that's to me is like you know, this movie gets praised universally for not falling into the trappings of the horror genre. Uh, and I always call bull on that because I'm like, well, yeah, it does, too, because in the third act, Kubrick springs the the slasher trap. You know, there's all that there's a, that friggin' avalanche of blood and the guy with his head half cut open and all the skeletons and then Scatman gets it in the chest with the axe. You can't tell me that's not there for graphic gore effect. I mean, that's exactly what that's supposed to do. And I don't know that it's bad. I I, I kind of like the fact that there's you know some physical violence to some of this stuff because I think good haunting movies. You mentioned the haunting earlier. There's a lot of weird bad stuff that happens to those people, you know, and I like that. But it does it does seem to only serve the purpose of now it's time to turn the shock, you know, wave on. I think it's also just to show that Jack is a real threat because you know up to the point a lot of it was threats. He really didn't do anything, but then showing him like, oh crap, he just killed someone. Like yes. This guy would be the guy who's going to kill his kid now. You know, there's, there's no. Ch- there- yeah, he chops through that door and does that whole "here's Johnny" thing, but that, that he never again. He still hadn't laid a hand on anybody yet. You know, I mean, that's that's the point. So, okay, well, let's talk about like the ghosts, all right? A, a little bit. You know, we talked about the two girls, and I, you know that's been parodied a billion times too. The little twin girls that talk in unison with each other. You know, they did it on Rocco's Modern Life. Ever, Actually, ever. they had a very, very good shining one where Heifer was the uh, um, security guard, and they had two uh, woodchucks going, "Heifer, come play with us." Former security <laughs> guards. <laughs> Yeah, you know what though, but it works. I I want to tell you they're probably the creepiest thing in the movie, uh, besides uh, Danny Boyd. One who's of the very creepy. A little bit creepier, and we'll get to it. Well, we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to that in a second. But as you know, I saw this movie when I was relatively young. I saw it on television, albeit. But this was one of the things that was left in there, and I thought that was really like frightening. You know, and anytime I would see like twins from then on i can't help but not have like a little flash of this which is sort of sad but that that's really kind of what i go to when i think about it and i i thought that was effective i liked the fact that these ghosts would not only pop in and out but like they they seem to change the presence of the room completely with them like they almost reverted it to a different time and they make a big deal out of how the bar is being not stocked during the winter but then when jack's you know having his first uh i guess you say breakdown in the bar there after that fight with wendy he's um he's sitting there and he looks up and then there's the bartender full bar but he's the only one in there still, but like there's something different about the lighting and all that stuff. Like it's like they bring something with them when they appear manifest. Yeah, it's it's a different look. I don't know exactly what it is, but it is a different look. And yeah, I mean that's kinda of one of the things though with the like the ghosts. I mean, it's like Jack really comes to accept them really fast. I mean, he comes into there or into the bar area in the ballroom and it's like Oh yeah, there's a guy in here serving me a drink. This isn't screwed up or messed up at all. It's like he really accepted it pretty quick. You know, I was I would have liked it a little bit more if Jack would have been kind of seeing stuff and at first been like, "No, this isn't happening." This happened, and just kind of a slow transition because it seems like when the ghosts appear to him, 
he accepts it real quick and accepts that, you know, they're there and they're real people, you know, or, you know, I don't even know really what he accepts. I mean, when he's talking to Lloyd at the bar, I mean, is he accepting that he's a ghost? Is he accepting that he's a person there? Is he just gone batshit nuts where it's like, well, I mean, how does he even know the guy's name is Lloyd? He just starts calling him that, you know, it's I, I, like, I got out of my, the mild reading of it is that, if we're to believe that Jack is tied to this hotel and like they're it's possessing him and he's possessing a role inside of it, that this is some manifestation of his own psyche. This would be his favorite bartender from back when he was a drunk. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, that may not be the case, but or maybe this was the bartender he always liked from the 20s. You know, since we go back to that and there's that. You know, picture at the end or whatever. I don't know, but I mean, I kind of got this Michael Crichton sphere thing going on with with it. watching it this time. Was like, are these projections or are some of these projections of what Jack wants? You know, and and what what he's looking for. I don't know. That's it. I think it goes a lot of different ways. It could ways, be, but, but then it, it's weird how he does just sort of I mean, go. It could with be, it. Yeah. but it's you know, but like you know, he meets Grady, and Grady obviously was a real person. Never mind that that first name changes. I mean. It was Charles Charles Grady in the beginning, and then it's uh yeah, and then he introduced yeah, himself so as I don't know, maybe, maybe it was yeah, Charles, that's kind of Charles weird, Dilbert, so. maybe that's his middle name, or maybe that was his you know name in the twenties, and that was his you know reincarnated name. I mean, or maybe it's just a mistake. But uh, all the other ghosts are basically you know they're they have a story behind them. I mean, the ghost in room two thirty seven. I mean, that's what Scatman you know was talking about. So obviously, that's not a projection, really. I mean. Wendy sees the two girls later, or I think she sees the two girls later, doesn't she? Or no, she sees the elevator of blood, and then she sees skeletons, and then she sees like the, the furry bear. <laughs> oh yeah, well, well yeah, we'll come back to that. Go back to the room two thirty seven though, because that's an interesting point. Because that happens after the first bar scene with Jack. He's sitting in there talking with Lloyd, having his bourbon, and Wendy runs in there like, "Jack, thank God you're here." You know, after she's basically like, "How could you hurt Danny?" Then she runs to him holding an axe. And she's like, there's a crazy woman upstairs and there's nobody else around. And he just looks at her like, have you lost it? And he goes to investigate. And now this is, you know, one of the moments of music that works. And it's, oh, God, it's such a weird scene, man. Uh, what goes down here? He goes in there and this woman opens up the the shower uh, curtain and climbs out of the tub, of course, fully nude. And she's you know, gorgeous or whatever. And he's just standing there just, you know, drooling over her, really. And then it takes a turn for the incredibly weird. Yeah, but even, like, before that, though, I mean, like, he, like, goes up to her and starts kissing her and stuff, and it's, like, again, just showing that this guy is just, like, irredeemable. Like, he just has no problem cheating on his wife. It's just, like, he wasn't, like, he was rubbing his eyes and, like, no, 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 I can't, this isn't real, or I can't do this. It was, like, well, I know, there's a naked woman. I'm going to go up there and start kissing her. I mean, it's, like... Yeah, and but what what does she turn into? That's well, yeah, she turns into the old, you know, this crepid lady with the you know pus stuff coming out of her. I mean, well, yeah, she. Look, I mean, is that supposed to be like Grady's wife that he chopped to death in the bed be, uh, bathroom, or is that supposed to be just another ghost? I've never known. Who in that the context was. of the movie, it could be it could be another lady, but in the book, it actually had a story behind it that that was a lady who was having an affair. She wasn't you know young young. She was like kind of middle aged and. She was having an affair with a younger guy, and the younger guy ends up later like standing her up and kind of leaving, and she's left at the hotel, you know, and she's just basically all beaten down from being rejected, and she goes into her bathtub and takes like 30 sleeping pills and dies. And that's exactly what the ghost is in the book. So it's not Grady's wife, but in in the movie, I guess it's really kind of up to your interpretation. I mean, it could be Grady's wife, it could be somebody else, I mean... The only ghosts that we've seen up to this point were Grady's kids, so it's you know it's maybe that's what Kubrick intended that that was going to be his wife, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we don't know. I mean, Kubrick's always notorious for he just leaves things out there. But did but did Allman say that because he wants you to? Did Allman say he out, killed you know? his wife with an axe? It, I mean, Allman said he chopped his wife and kid into pieces and stacked their bodies neatly, and then he. You know, shot his, shot himself in the head with a shotgun. So I don't know. I mean, she didn't look know. like she was attacked with an axe when she turned into an old lady. But then, why would she be an old lady then, too? You know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's all it, again. It's it's the I think part of that is, and it's one of the some of the many things that just start happening in this film that are unexplained, and they're there really just for the shock value. I mentioned that you know the things that Wendy sees at the end, and I left out a big one that you dropped there a minute ago. One of the first things she runs upstairs and sees is somebody in a bear suit. Uh, 
giving oral pleasure to another man. I mean, we don't see graphic, but we just see like the bear suit look up and then the man lean up. And it's just one of those WTF moments. And from what I understand, there's absolutely no explanation to it. In, now, in the book, there's a story to it. But in the film, it was just one of those things Kubrick wanted to throw in because he just wanted to mess with people to show how disoriented Wendy was. It's, it's one of those things like my wife and I both looked at each other and she was like, what? And then I was like, I have no idea. I've seen this movie a hundred times. I still don't know what that is. Yeah, and that's. I think that's the only purpose of it is just to be a, like a you know WTF moment where it's like, what the heck? You know, it's just no no other point yeah. but that. But it's it's one of the most you know, for only the few seconds is on the screen. It's one of the most iconic shots in the movie. I mean, when you're thinking about this movie, you're thinking about the hedge maze, the elevator of blood. Two girls and probably that, you know, it's kind of like that's always something that I remember seeing as a kid. I remember kind of watching the end of this movie on TV, and I still I always remember that. Like, what the hell was that? You know, I'm like 12 years old watching this, and it's like I didn't understand what he was doing at the time, but it was like that's really messed up. I don't know what I just saw. I mean, it is. It's really, it is really messed up. That's a go at to say. It's just really screwed up, you know. And I think that's what we're supposed to get is that it's just everything, you know. This is when the hotel is really showing you what it's got in terms of its ghostly power. If we're to buy that the hotel is a ghost or is you know is haunted or whatever, and it's really manifesting for Wendy now because Jack's completely gone off the edge, so it knows it's got him. Danny's in you know the the freak out mode and having his little you know drooling spell and red rum and all that and Wendy is just running around with like this huge knife you know <laughs> and she keeps seeing all this this horrific stuff you know but that's just the one that has always struck me as weird it's all it's almost as weird as the lady I yeah. think it is the hotel's kind of because up to this point Wendy hasn't been seeing anything in the hotel Danny's been seeing it because of his you know gift or his burden whatever you want to call it and you know Jack's been seeing it because you know okay is he reincarnated or is the hotel trying to take him but Wendy hasn't seen it, and to me, I always took it as the hotel was revealing itself to her to basically give Jack the upper edge. It was wanting him to kill her. I mean, after she puts him in the freezer, the ghosts free him. And I always think, you know, that's one thing a lot of people always talk about the movie is like, is it cabin fever or is it really ghosts? Well, I think that's the reveal that it is ghosts because Jack gets out of the freezer with the help of the ghosts. I mean, they let him out. Yeah. So it's got to be ghosts. Yeah, and I think it's, it's a reveal to Wendy just to have her completely lose it, giving Jack the upper hand so he'd be able to take her out. Let me ask you this, because the, the ghost, and Grady does this, and then he's the one that comes back and says, we're worried that you're not going to take care of this problem. Is the whole purpose of the haunting or the ghost to have this man slaughter his family over and over and over again? I guess. I mean, guess what Grady did to his family, and I guess that's what Jack did to his family. I mean... Maybe the reincarnated past ghosts in there to have them come in there and, you know, commit murder. I mean, maybe it's the Revenge of the Indians, because, you know, that's brought up early in the movie that the hotel was built on ancient burial ground, and maybe it's something with the Indians' ghosts and stuff, yeah. and they're, they're having, the you know, the white people come in there and, you know, kill their families over and over again, that it's kind of a burden that they got to, you know, bring on them. It's the white man's burden. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King and his Indian burial grounds. That won't be the last time we have this conversation, but, uh, but you know, or it'll come up in one of these podcasts. But yeah, you're you're right. That definitely could play that way. What about the final bit though, with the chase through the hedge maze? I actually like this part. I like that Danny is. It, you know, he would know that maze, of course, because he'd played in it for so much. But I like how he gets so far ahead of his dad and then realizes I need to backtrack through my own steps and then hide in the snow and let dad lose me here. I mean, what did you think of that? I thought that was really good. No, it's very, very clever. I don't know if a kid would come up with that. I mean, I think a kid at that point or really most people would be kind of running for their lives and not really realizing about the footsteps they're leaving behind. But, you know, it, it, it was a good thing, and I, it was a really great moment. I mean, it's kind of one of most those, like, you know, fist-pump moments when he does that, and then he hides, and Jack falls for it and completely gets lost. Something to think about, though, that happens there, and it, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but at that point, Danny has gone into full Tony mode. You know, and he doesn't talk in his normal voice again until he runs out of that hedge maze and meets his mother and they get in the snow cat and leave again. I mean, he doesn't speak really after she grabs him in there in the bathroom and she gets him out the window. But I've always taken that as that is Tony, his ESP, his, his perception, his shining that is leading him through that and says, stop, 
walk backward, hide in the snow. You know, like the, it's that thing that is sort of working for him. I've always taken it as that. It's it's the good ghost, if you will, that's sort of allowing Danny to escape. I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Yeah, and that that's that's a very good point. I never really thought about that. But yeah, I mean, it'd be nice if the movie would have just maybe talked a little bit more about what Tony is. Because in the book, they talk about what Tony is. Tony is Danny in the future. Yeah, yeah, it's very clear, yeah, what Tony is. But here it's it's his imaginary friend that we think it's his only way to deal with that, the shining that he's got. Yeah, it's kind of his, uh, maybe his false, you know, just some type of character he's making up that he's just talking through to kind of help him cope with what's going on. But I think it would have been nice, you know, maybe if it was, you know, again, to make Scatman's character something that he's the one that tells Danny that or something, you know? Well, I think he, I think he does, and I, I think there's a point where, like, you, you realize that Tony is not just an imaginary friend, and you get that early on when we first meet him, when he's talking with Tony while he's brushing his teeth, and Tony shows him that, you know, that wave of blood and all that stuff coming down, and he has that kind of fainting spell. Mm-hmm. I think we know Tony is something supernatural and yeah. extra sensory. The adults think Tony's just imaginary, but Danny knows Tony's very real. Yeah, well, you know, and he is probably real, I mean, real in the ghost sense or something, but they never really expand any more on what Tony is or who he is or anything. I mean, I don't know. I mean, would it have been so far-fetched if they would have had done in the movie that Tony Tony was Scatman's character the whole time? That yep, maybe he had, some type, that he had some type of connection with them, and what he knew about it, that he, you know, he's communicating, he, or he always knew that those people would end up coming there because the hotel was kind of telling him, and he was kind of preparing Danny in a way, and, you know, maybe even after he died or something, he was able to, you know, really help, you know. Now you're now you're in George Lucas territory, sir. Yeah, going back <laughs> now, to Star now. Wars, I mean, it could have been something yeah. where he's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi, and he's really now, you know, talking. I mean, it wouldn't be so bad. I mean. It wouldn't, but I think it would have played like Star Wars. You know, was boy, yeah, like Star Wars had played there at the end with Ben telling Luke to use the Force, turn off your computer, shoot the Death Star, all that. I, like, I don't think Kubrick wanted to go for that at all. <laughs> he was going in the, I'm going to not explain any of this. I'm going to let people figure it out because you know the, the fact is, Nick, this movie's 32 years old, and we're sitting here talking about it because we both just watched it, you know, twice in the last week again. Because it's something that lasts. It's the thing about about this kind of movie is, and what gives it staying power is that there are no answers for any of this. I mean, even all the like extra material you can get with a DVD and stuff answers nothing except to just show you how grueling the shoot was. You know, which only confirms what all the actors have always said about it. So, I, you know, th- there are no answers. It, it's left up for you to decide. Which isn't bad. Isn't bad because no. it's organically brought up. It's not like Prometheus, where <laughs> the whole bo- the, the the whole like if 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 Lindenloft would have wrote this movie, the whole movie's premise would have been like, we're going up to this hotel to find out who Tony is, and you know it's going to be a yeah. psychiatric experiment, and Scatman's a a psychiatrist, and he's going to figure out what exactly Tony is and stuff, and us him being away secluded will help us figure it out. And then in the end going, well, it doesn't matter who Tony is. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's brought up organically throughout the movie. All the questions and stuff, the ghosts. I mean, everything we've talked about, everything we've discussed, the different theories, all brought up organically throughout the film. And that's because there, there's no sequel. There's no other continuation of this. We don't know what happens. You know, in this with this film, and you read the book, you know what happens in later life, but you don't know what happens to Danny and Wendy except that they get away. In you Scat will Man's. in a little bit because there actually is a sequel book coming out this year. Well, th- that's the thing is, and I was sort of bridging to that. There's a sequel book coming out, and I don't know. What do you think about that? I'll read it. I think it's interesting. I read a little bit of it about what it's about, and I think there's like vampires in it or something like that, which is. I guess, you know, kind of interesting. I mean, with Stephen King, I mean, every book's connected if you've ever read the Dark Tower series. I mean, they're all kind of true, connected true. in they, their own weird, you know, multiverse, you know. Just as a film, I'm curious to see if there's something for them to jump off of and for someone to come back and go, should we make, you know, because they talked about doing like a prequel movie to this, which I think would be disastrous because just like Prometheus, we've already got the backstory filled in. Nothing you do is going to is gonna make us happy unless you do exactly what we think will lead to where we, we well, know how, how would it even begins. end? How would it even end? It's like, 
Oh my yeah, God, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. He's going to pull Danny's arm out of a socket. You know? What, what, yeah, what I mean, what's the, the what's the point of that? Yeah, I mean, who who wants to see that? I would be curious to see if they wanted to revisit this thing and go and and let's put it in modern times and another family or something go into the overlook. We see, it's hard to think about now that there's not a way to like keep roads clear because I I have relatives that live in Colorado in the high hills and they keep it clear. They have a way of doing that now that wasn't available when King wrote the book and when the movie was made so it would be i don't know it would be an interesting exercise to see where they go i'm like you i'm going to i'm going to check the book out too and see what the the story is you know and and find out find out a little bit about it but i guess we're at the point of the podcast nick where it's time to judge this movie once and for all final recommendations and popcorn ratings so what are yours for the shining uh, for me it's going to be a large popcorn i mean for the longest time I really didn't care that much for this movie because I really hold the book in high regard, but I've watched this movie now because we've been trying to do this podcast for the last couple of weeks. I've ended up watching it about six times. So, And <laughs> the fact that I've been able to watch it six times really, I think, speaks volumes for the movie. I think it's a very good movie. I don't think it's great. I don't think it's one of the greatest horror movies of all time. I can name ten horror movies I appreciate a lot more than this, but it is a solid film and one that really keeps your interest throughout the movie and one that's extremely rewatchable. So for me, it's going to be a large popcorn. I'm going to join you in that large popcorn, and I agree with what you said there about it's it's not one of the scariest movies of all time. I don't watch this movie and get scared. I think when I was younger I did because it is frightening. But as I'm older, I don't get scared by this movie. What I am is intrigued by it. And I think, like we mentioned here tonight, the fact that it can spurn so many different conversations about what is this and what is that, and that those are sort of eternal discussions because there's no one left to answer them. King certainly never will, and I hope in this book he doesn't try to do that. And Kubrick's not around to do it. You know, and, and not, Nicholson can't remember any of this. All he remembers is that he slept a lot because he was tired from working. <laughs> you know, and Shelley Duvall never talks about this. You know, the, and she talks about how awful she was treated. So it, there's nobody around to fill in the gaps. And I think that's what makes this film endearing. That said, there's a lot in it that I think we've nitpicked apart and there's stuff that works and doesn't work, but it's definitely worth a watch. If you've never seen it, I mean, you, this is one of those you gotta see. It's like The Exorcist. It's one of those, if you're into horror movies in particular, thriller films, suspense films, this is on your, your checklist. You gotta see this one. It it's fantastic. It holds up really well. Beautiful, beautiful cinematography. Really interesting sound design too. I, I love the whole thing, all of it. Uh, large popcorn for me. Very, very fun film and a fun one to revisit from time to time. So, Nick, we've just started our Stephen King kind of cross section here, and next up, uh, this you know this next one's a suggestion of yours, Cat's Eye, a, a bit of an anthology uh, for us, uh, three stories. So, uh, curious to see how these things tie together. I've never seen it uh, before, so and, and and interesting to see what it's all about. So. Uh, like we gave you the first folks we've got a lot of stuff coming up check us out on our Facebook page you can link to that off of our of course our main page continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies find our archive section Nick and I have reviewed like all the alien movies the Blair Witch films uh, we even did something called Terror Vision uh, of course Brian and I have done four count them folks four leprechaun films uh, now to this point. So those are all there. Uh, Anna and I've done romantic comedy. She and I just finished up doing When a Stranger Calls back in October, which is a really fun series. One of all the greatest, of uh, one of the greatest uh, romantic comedies of all time. <laughs> well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. But <laughs> at any rate, we had a lot of fun with that one, and of course, we got a lot of cool stuff planned as we head toward the end of the year. Now, the thing to know about the the King series here, folks, is not going to be consecutive, and we're going to do a few of these, and then we'll take a break, do some of the stuff, and then do a few more. We'll kind of tack them on uh, over the next several months, try to wrap them up by the uh, the end of the spring or next year. But hang in there with us; really appreciate it. Hey, if you're a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, check out our sister podcast, The Art of Slaying, also available through our site there. Until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. White man's burden. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.